I have to tell you this morning that when I was reading and studying the passage that we're going to read uh, this past week, I, I got excited about preaching it to you. Now, I've preached on this passage before, uh, but I just got excited about it. Do you, ever, do you ever read God's Word, and when you're reading it, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden it just it jumps out at you, and you get excited about what you're, what you're reading, and you get excited about what the Scripture is teaching? Now, I get excited about a lot of Scripture. In fact, just about every week when I'm working on a sermon, I get excited about the passage that I'm looking uh, at. And, uh, but in particular, when I started uh, uh, preparing this message, I just had a keen sense of the, uh, of the Spirit of God, and I got excited about the fact that I could share it with you today. So, so listen carefully. I, I want us all right now to ask God to move in us and to speak to us and to help us listen to his voice as we continue this series on uh, myths that lead to misbelief. And I'm serious about that. So I want us to pray even before we read scripture right now. God, would you speak? God, would you move in our hearts right now? Are you ready? Let's pray together. Now, in the quietness of this moment, will you ask God that? Will you say, God, would you prevent any distractions from keeping my mind from receiving your word? And Lord, would you keep the enemy of my soul from distorting anything that your word has to say? And right now, Father, with your Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Lord, I don't know if you'll speak to anyone else, but speak to me right now. And Lord, I am listening. I tell you, I am listening. You've given me these ears. I am listening to you, and I'm listening with my heart and soul. Speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, last week we talked about some common cultural uh, uh, religious beliefs about God, and I want to continue that uh, today by sharing several more, four more what uh, are generally common myths about uh, uh, God and misbeliefs about him. Erwin Lutzer has written the following. He said, our generation uh, chose to meet its spiritual needs by shopping for a faith that has fragments of Christianity that are mixed with Scientology and Buddhism and any number of notions derived from personal experience. And although an overwhelming number of people will continue to say they believe in God, their conception of God will be as diverse as the items in a shopping mall. Nietzsche was right. Once God was declared dead, a reign of God's followed and everyone worshiping his or her deity of choice. We Americans, obsessed with consumerism and pleasure, have created a God who is tolerant of our lifestyles, lets us be in charge, and serves mainly to help us fulfill our potential. He is a God that we have designed just for ourselves. I couldn't say it better. Many churchgoers today now derive their understanding of God as much from popular culture as they do from the scriptures. According to journalist Chris Stamper, we have created a deity that looks less and less like the one true God and more and more like the star of a do-it-yourself gospel pulled off a tray at the postmodern cafeteria. Oskines described our age this way. He says, we have fit bodies, soft minds, and empty souls. Now, the lies and the myths about God 
that I described last week and that I'll talk about today are becoming more accepted, not just in the culture, but in the church itself. And so we need a clear biblical view of God because the clearer our vision of God, the more compelling will be our desire to trust him, to obey him, and to worship him. That said, our knowledge and our understanding of God must be sourced from the scriptures and not from our personal preferences or our personal experience. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me this morning as we read our text. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes and he says, He, that is God, uh, or Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, thank you again for your word, the richness of it. Speak, we're listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, Paul, writing to these Colossian Christians, was writing to counter a very clever group of false teachers. These false teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were misleading the believers, the family of God, with false ideas and false teachings about who Christ was, and who God was. They were very clever. They were very crafted and they taught a distorted view of God. And that's important to understand because a distorted view of God, as I said last week, leads to a distorted view of life and a distorted perspective of who we are and a distorted view of culture and of responsibility. A.W. Tozer said that what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I believe that the church and our nation have entered the refiner's fire. And it is my prayer that we become cleaner, stronger, and more committed to God. But I'm concerned because, to be honest, there are too many professing followers of Jesus that have accepted a distorted view of God and of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I'm concerned because I don't see much, if any, desperation today to know God on the part of the church. I don't expect the world to be desperate for God. But brothers and sisters, we must be, especially in this hour. 
We must be desperate to seek him. Not only for we talk about national revival, but listen to me, brothers and sisters, we need to be desperate for God to move in our life. There'll be no revival out there if there's no revival in here. And that's why we're, we've been praying for 30 days. That's why this Wednesday, I think it's very important. We have to develop a new sense of urgency. Are you watching what's going on? Are you seeing what's happening around you? Do, do you recognize that the day is coming when they're going to declare you, me, us as hostile to this culture? We must be on our knees. There's a new sense of urgency. We must understand we simply, if we're not careful, develop an attitude that says, well, you know, God has always kind of made a way for us and we'll, he'll make a way for us. You know, his way may be judgment next. And so it's so important that we understand who he is. I'm concerned that until we begin to, to worship God and to seek the God who is instead of the God who we want, that we'll not see God move in our life and we'll not see God move in our church and we'll not see God move in our nation. We must return to the true knowledge of the Holy One and surrender to his way. So today, I, I want to look at four more myths about God that are creating, I believe, a, a false uh, understanding of who he is in the church as well as in the world. The first is this, that God is unrecognizable. Now, you and I might say, well, no, he's, you know, I know he's there, but you know, there are many today that follow Christ who say, yeah, but you know, it'd be a whole lot easier if I could, if God would just show up, if God would do something. God seems so invisible. Verse 15, notice what it says about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There are people today who say this, because I can't see God, I won't believe in God. Some years ago, Bryant Gumbel interviewed Larry King. Now, isn't that interesting? It's usually the other way around. Larry King interviews people, but Bryant Gumbel interviewed Larry King a bunch of years ago, and uh, uh, on national t television, he asked Larry King this question. He said, Larry, if you could meet God and ask him one question, what would it be? Now, remember, Larry King is a Jew. And his response back to Bryant Gumbel, when Gumbel again asked, if you could meet God and ask him one question, what would it be? Larry King answered and said, I'd ask God if he has a son. I'd ask him if he has a son. That's an interesting question. I could answer that for him. I can tell you he does. And his name is Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying right here. You see, these, these clever teachers were saying, well, does God really have a son? Is Jesus really the son of God? That's what they were teaching the, the believers. And you would be stunned to know what uh, the surveys show of those who follow Christ who debate whether or not Jesus is really God if he's just simply an expression or a symbol of God. And Paul is correcting that. He says that Jesus, in the Greek, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. And the word for image here is the Greek word icon. You know, you know what an icon is. We get our English word I-C-O-N from the Greek uh, version of that icon. If you've got a computer, you have these little icons all over your screen. And you know when you click on an icon, it brings something uh, uh, to life. 
And that's the word that's used here. And it's, it's the word for image. And in, in Paul's time, an, that, that word icon meant uh, the, the likenesses of someone placed on a coin. So if you'd see that likeness on a coin, or it represented portraits or statutes. It was the nearest equivalent in Paul's day to a, uh, the ancient word for photograph. The image, the exact image. But there's more. The word uh, icon further means and meant when it was used in that day. It is not just the image, it is the manifestation of that image. And so Paul is, is saying that this is not just a symbol. Jesus wasn't just a symbol. Uh, Jesus wasn't just a representative. He, he, was, he was the actual manifestation of the presence of the object that he was the image of. In other words, he wasn't a replica of God. He wasn't an ambassador for God. You and I are ambassadors. He wasn't an ambassador. He wasn't a representative of God. He was the actual manifestation of God. In fact, John chapter 1, verse 18 drives home the crucial fact when it says that no one has ever seen God. That's what they say. So you can't see God. No one has ever seen God. And then John goes on to record the only God. No one has seen him who is at the Father's side. That one at the Father's side has made him known. Who's he talking about in John 1? He's talking about Jesus. The point is that Christ, the, uh, in Christ, the invisible God became visible. Are you with me? Do you understand? In Christ, the invisible God became visible. He shared the same substance as God. He was God's character uh, expressed in the earthly sphere of existence. The revelation of God in Christ is such that you and I can actually see him even with all of our limitations. So we see God when we see Christ. The fact is God was made visible through Jesus. In fact, let me point you to three scriptures. Write these down. John 12 and verse 45, Jesus said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And in, in, in Colossians 2, uh, and by the way, in this uh, passage we read as well, in Colossians 2, 9, Paul says, For in him all of the fullness of deity dwells bodiless. He's fully God. That's what he's saying. In John 14, verses 8 and 9, again, Jesus said, you remember this passage? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said back to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, show us the Father and we'll believe. If you'll show us God, we'll believe. Jesus said, here I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now we've been misled to believe that in, in life, Seeing is believing, right? Seeing physically with our, we, we've been misled to, and we're prone to think that if my eyes can't see something, my head won't believe it and my heart can't receive it. Jesus said some pretty strong words for this kind of approach. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know what they were saying? The Pharisees were saying, look, just show us a sign. The Greek word there is a word that means give us an attesting miracle. Give us a miracle that will confirm so we will believe. And Jesus says only an evil generation looks for a sign. Who, a, a generation that says, if you will show me, I will believe. And you know what he was saying? To that generation, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. You know what he's talking about. He's talking about on Easter, you know, Passion Week that we're entering. He's talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection. He said that right there is what will reveal uh, who I am. He said, but, but if you're seeking to believe based on seeing a sign, you won't see. And in our world, we're taught, well, seeing is believing. But in the spiritual world, believing is seeing. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. If you want to see God, you say, well, no man can see God and, and live. I wish I had time to talk about the, the story in Exodus chapter 33 where, where God put Moses in the cleft and he covered him and he passed by and he let Moses see his backside. You remember that story, don't you? But he couldn't see the front. He couldn't see God. And whatever manifestation of God that was, uh, he couldn't see it because the glory was too powerful. It would have killed him. No man can see God. But that's why God sent Jesus into this world. So that we could see God. That we could understand. That's what the incarnation is all about. Jesus taking on skin so we could say, now we know what God is like. Because of him. And, and so we, we want our eyesight to validate our belief. You ever question God because he's not operating the way you think he should? Do you ever, do you ever doubt God because you don't visibly see him working? The, the myth that we're talking about here, uh, uh, the, the myth that, that we can't see him, that he's unrecognizable, is, to, is an attempt to convince us that God must reveal himself, listen, in the way we think he should reveal himself. And if he doesn't, then we're off the hook. This is how I think God should reveal himself. And if he doesn't reveal himself the way I think he should, then I'm off the hook. I don't have to believe. God ought to make himself uh, known to me the way I want him to make himself known to me. Patrick Morley, a, a, a uh, a wonderful businessman who uh, ended up in men's ministry uh, uh, said the thing that changed his life, he had been a nominal Christian most of his, his Christian life, but he said the thing that changed his life was when he finally realized that there was a God who is and there was the God he wanted. And he said he had lived most of his Christian life following the God he wanted. In other words, a designer God. I'm going to create the God I want him to be and that's who I will follow. Uh, but he said his whole life turned around when he suddenly realized that there's a God who is. The God of the scripture is not always the God I want. The enemy wants to convince you that you can't see God, that God is unrecognizable. But if you want to see God, and point this, uh, and the point of this passage is that God can be recognized. Then let me tell you how to see God. Study his word. Because he's revealed himself in his word. You want to see God? Study the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. 
Because Jesus Christ was the manifest. And if you do, you'll be able to recognize God. You'll recognize his character. You'll recognize his nature. In Christ, you will recognize who he is. All right, that's myth number one. Myth number two is that God is incapable or unable. Verse 16, verse 17, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. Don't underestimate that statement. And verse 17 says, in him all things hold together. Now, the common lie or myth about God today uh, suggests that because there is evil in the world and God doesn't prevent evil from existing, it is because he's unable or incapable of doing so. Right? That's kind of the, the, the idea. It's common in the culture. Well, if God is who God says he is, then he... Uh, could prevent evil, and because he doesn't prevent evil, he's unable to prevent evil. But the problem with this myth is that it's based purely, listen, on human logic and emotion. In, in other words, it says, because God doesn't act the way I think he should act, I refuse to believe in him, or he must be limited. And by the way, if God is limited, he's not God. By definition, there was many years ago, I have a copy of it, I don't uh, urge you to buy one, but there's a book by Rabbi Harold Kushner entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the sad message of this book is, is summed up in this statement he makes. I believe in God, but he is limited in what he can do by laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. His answer to why bad things happen to good people is because God just can't stop it. God can't interrupt it. God is unable to, and so therefore we just exist, um, and our own human nature is what determines our human outcome. But the problem with this myth is it doesn't factor in three things. Number one, it doesn't factor in worldwide rebellion against God. The entire world is in rebellion against God. You're in rebellion against God. I'm in rebellion against God. That's why we needed God in the flesh. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't factor in, number two, man's fallen condition. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. It doesn't factor our fallen condition in. And number three, it doesn't factor in uh, that God is not subject to our logic or our rationale. Isaiah the prophet said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, when you, when you believe the lie that God is incapable or unable, what you're really saying is that God has to fit into my brain. God has to fit into my agenda. God has to fit into my structure. This myth begins with man and it reasons back to God. Did you get that? It begins with man and it reasons back to God. And that's backwards. We begin with God and we reason back to man. But you see, when, when we believe some of these lies about God, what we're actually doing is elevating our intellect above the intellect of God. 
college student, college student asked his pastor, he said, pastor, do you, you think there's life on other planets? And the pastor said, no, I, I, I don't think so. And the college student said, he said, but you're not a physicist or a scientist. And he said, you mean all those billions and billions and billions of planets out there? You don't think there's life uh, uh, out there? And the pastor said, no, I, I, I really don't think so. And the college student said, then why did God go to all the trouble to make all of that stuff? To which the pastor said, what trouble? There's no trouble for God. The Bible says that he spoke and it was so. You see, God is not unable or incapable. In fact, this passage, Paul writes and tells us two things. He says that God is the creator. Did you get that? God is a creator. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Paul says that God was the creator. And then he says that God was the preserver of all creation. He is the creator and the preserver. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know what's in the center of an atom? protons and neutrons and they're both positively charged particles now here's the problem with that positive particles repel one another except in the atom they don't they don't they they cooperate together they don't repel one another you know if you put the wrong sides of two magnets together you know how they repel each other well Protons and neutrons are both positively charged, but they don't repel one another. Scientists can't explain it. They, they, they don't have an answer for that. But Paul gave us one. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is what holds the atom together, dear friend. God is what causes the protons and the neutrons in the nucleus of that atom to cooperate with one another. How capable, how powerful is God? Well, the psalmist said this, by the word of, listen to this, by the word of the, the Lord, the heavens were made, and by, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host he gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He puts the uh, deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Or listen, I don't have time to read it for you, but go read Psalm 148, which is a praise psalm about God, the, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And at one place in Psalms 48, uh, 148, it says, praise him, you holy angels, for he commanded and you were created. And he says, in the waters and the skies and the firmament, everything that has breath should praise God. Why? Because he spoke it into being. Do you know you're here because God spoke and you were created? I got a grandson. If I'm not here next Sunday, you know where I am. I'll be in Nashville. I'm praying that he won't come until after Easter because God's given me an Easter message I want to preach to you. 
but he may. Because God determines that. But I want to tell you something. Before he was ever in our daughter's womb, he was spoken to being in the heart and the mind of God. That's what the Bible says. Before any day of your life ever existed, all of them were written down in the book of God. Wow. So let go of the lie if you've believed it. That God is a capricious, incapable ruler who is unable to express power over anything He can do that when he wants to. He can do it how he wants, and he can do it where he wants. And when the devil wants you to believe the lie, remember the truth. What's the truth? Jeremiah said it this way in chapter 32. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing, listen, nothing is too hard for you. All right? Is God unable? Well, you know the answer. Of course not. A third myth about God is that God is uninterested. God is uninterested. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Who is he talking about when he he has now reconciled? He's talking about you. Don't ever believe God's not interested in you. Well, this is the Passion Week. This is the Cross Week. And the resurrection, the cross, the cross means that Jesus was interested in you. The cross means that God loves you. The cross, when you look at the cross, it says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. The cross is God's love message. The cross is the message that says, I care about you. I'm not uninterested in you. And many people have decided that God's just not concerned with them or that God's too busy for them or that he has more important matters to attend to or or he'd rather give his attention to more prominent kinds of people. Who am I that God would be interested in me? The devil loves that one. The devil loves that one. He knows that he can make you miserable. He can cause you to feel insignificant and insecure and He can render you ineffective for God. If he can just cause you to believe that God's not that interested in you. Who am I that God would be interested in me? And the devil will whisper that into your heart and your mind. Do you know this myth will cause a lot of pain in your life if you believe it? Because you will assume that God has no real purpose for your life. That's what it will cause you to do. I told our staff this week in in one of our staff study uh, sessions, I I said, you know, um, the devil uh, loves to help us to believe that God will do work in other people's lives, but not in mine. It's so much easier for most of us to believe, well, I can see God doing a work in your life, but then we go, but would he do one in mine? I don't think he'd do one in mine. Who am I that God would be concerned about me? This myth will cause a lot of pain in your Psychologists tell us that one of the major causes of unhappiness and depression for people is when they have identity problems. Identity issues are things like, who am I? Do I matter? Does my life count? Uh, am I worth anything? Does my life have any value? The facts are you are precious to God. You're precious to God. And God is so interested in you. And, and he crafted you specifically for his purpose. God knows all about you. Your value and your importance uh, is not assigned to you by what other people think of you. You don't need everyone's approval to be filled with joy and be secure in life. 
What you need is to know the truth. And the truth is that God thinks you're very valuable. God cares for you. Casting all your worry upon him because he cares for you, the scripture says. He loves you. I like what Max Lucado said some years ago. He said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Isn't that good? Well, we do have a refrigerator and we've got uh, pictures on our refrigerator. And you know, a whole bunch of them are our grandson and about to uh, have some more on there. They're, why? Why are they there? It is because they're our offspring and we love them unconditionally. And so we have their pictures everywhere, everywhere. Does God love you that way? Well, listen to this, Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head or the lack thereof, Chuck. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. You realize how valuable you are to God? You realize how much he loves you? You realize how much your life is worth? Verse 22 tells us how interested God is in us because what did he do? He reconciled us. That phrase tells you of your value to God. He reconciled us. He sent Christ and Christ dying on the cross. And he did you notice what he says? He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He reconciled. That's how valuable you are to God. Don't you believe anything else? It isn't because we were worthy. He didn't reconcile us because we deserve to be reconciled. He reconciled because apart from him, we had no hope. There was no worthiness in us. There was no capacity for us to earn it. It's just because we are loved by our creator. And God wants you to know that this morning. And to all of you and all of those who are joining us by live stream, I want to tell you something. It isn't about your worth. It isn't about your comparison between other people. It is because Jesus says you're valuable because God created you and he loves you. He loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And that's why that precious verse, John 3, 16, we all know for God so loved the world, all of us, he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son uh, into the world that whosoever believe in, would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's how valuable you are. The one and only son God gave up for you. God wants you to know that. There's one final myth that I want to show you this morning, though, and that is the myth that God is unavailable. Now, why did he reconcile you? Well, in verse 22, he tells us, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. There's the myth that God is unavailable. He's unaccessible. And did you know the devil is okay with you believing that God is available to other people or even more dynamic Christians as long as you believe that he is unavailable to you? Did you get what I said? That the devil's okay with you believing that God is available oh, to my friends. God is available to people, you know, uh, that have significant stature, whatever that means. 
God's available to them. He's okay with you believing that as long as you accept the lie that, but he's not really accessible to me. It's a lie. But the truth is, Jesus reconciled us in order to present us to God. In other words, to give us access into the holy presence of God. Jesus died on the cross to give you that kind of access to God. To create a new relationship, a relationship that had been destroyed. And it has all the benefits of being a son or a daughter of God In fact, Paul tells us about that. We've been adopted through Christ uh, into the holy family, into the people of God because of what Christ did. And in Ephesians 2, Paul writes and says, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friend, listen to me. It's not a stretch to say on the cross, Jesus was dying for you to have access to God. On the cross, he was dying so you would have access to God the Father. The Bible tells us, you know, when Jesus said it was finished on the cross, that the veil was torn from top to bottom. The access to God, that's what that that meant, that now all of us have access. We have free access, not just the high priest. We all have access to enter into the holy place. That's what Jesus did for us. He gave us access I want to ask you this morning, have you been living your life believing all of these myths? Well, they're all from hell. They're not from God. It's not one of them that's true. And what you believe about God dramatically affects your life. And and the devil will, will help you settle for believing in God as long as he can get you to believe in the myths about God. Uh, He'll be fine with you believing in God if he can get you to accept the myths about God. Many years ago, I read a book by Max Dupree, a famed uh, businessman, highly successful businessman, but a very strong believer. The book was entitled Leadership Jazz. It's a wonderful book. And in the prologue, he opens up the book with a powerful story um, about the birth of his granddaughter, Zoe. Zoe's the Greek word for life. And she was born prematurely. She weighed one pound and seven ounces. So tiny, in fact, that his wedding ring would fit over her arm or leg. And additionally, Zoe's father, her biological father, had abandoned Max's daughter the month before the child was born. The first time Max suited up, in all the protective gear he had to wear to visit Zoe in her isolated neonatal room in the hospital. She had two IVs in her arms, one in her navel and a feeding tube plus a breathing tube in her mouth. But there was a wise caring nurse he writes about named Ruth and she gave Max his instructions. She said to him, for the next several months you will be the surrogate father. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to come and see Zoe every day. And while you're here, I would like for you to rub her arms and rub her legs with the tip of your fingers. And while you are caressing her, you should tell her over and over and over and over how much you love her. Because she needs to connect your voice and your touch. 
Well, I want to tell you this morning, God knew that you and I also needed both his voice and his touch. And so you know what he did? He gave us his word to speak to us so we could hear his voice and hear his heart. And he sent his son to die on a cross so we could be touched by God. He knew the connection that you need and needed and that I need and needed. And because of that, all of eternity can be different. Will you bow your head and close your eyes, no one looking about in this place? And those of you who are joining us by live stream, maybe you've, you've believed in your head, but you've never been touched in your heart or your soul by the Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you and died for you. Would you put your trust in him today? How do you do that? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And right now, wherever you are in this building or by live stream or television, you can call out to him in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me. You died for me. My value is in you. I thank you and I receive you as my Savior. Forgive me of my sins and give me one day a home with you in heaven. I invite you in. Now maybe here today, all this has done is just remind you of the truth about God. And if that's the case, that's a wonderful reminder. So that when you walk out of here, you walk out of here believing the truth, not the myths, not the lies, not even, not even tolerating the myths or lies about God. But say, God, I will live my life based on what your word says. Now, Father, in this place today, I pray that you have moved in hearts. By those who are watching online and television, I pray that you have moved, Father, and I pray that you give them courage, Father, to take next steps in their relationship with you. Father, help us to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, help us to have a sense of urgency and desperation of, for our need for you in this refining hour of our lives, of the church, and the nation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll look this way for just a moment, just some closing instructions. In this live audience, what I say to the live stream audience is true for you. And that is, if you made a decision to trust Christ today, maybe you've believed, you just haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, but today you did that. Would you text the word pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, to 334-384-8080. And we'll, we'll take it from there. Don't you worry about it. But if today you prayed that prayer, you called on Christ to become your Savior, we want to help encourage you in the right direction. And so text that word pastor to us. Again, you'll see the number on your screen. You can do that live audience as well, or you can use the tear-off panel that's on uh, the back of your worship folder and just check, I pray to receive Christ and fill in some information there for us. That's all you need to do. Drop it in the offering basket on the way out. 
Maybe you're watching and you're preparing. You say, I need a church home. I'm, I'm ready to, to return to uh, live gatherings. A man told me before this service started, he said, you know, it's so good to be back. He said, we thank God for being able to watch, but there's nothing like being in a live service. And maybe you're saying, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. I'm going to be back. And we'd love to have you, by the way, in this place. If you don't have a church home, we'd love for Ridgecrest to become that church home. If you know Christ, you say, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. Here's how you do it. Text that word, join. Text it to 334-384-8080. We'll get it. We'll know what to do with it. You text that word to us. Or maybe you need to be baptized. We'll schedule that. We have two baptisms in the next service that we'll be, uh, we'll be doing. And maybe you say, I need to do that because I have trusted Christ and I'd like to be obedient in that area. You just text that word, baptize. Again, we'll take it from there, that number. That's true of anyone in this room or use the tear-off panel. In any of those cases, uh, we want to hear from you about your decision to trust and follow Christ or to join Ridgecrest to be baptized. I hope you'll take that very seriously and let us know about that. Thank you again for being here. Thank you again, live stream audience, for tuning in. May the Lord bless you richly.